0: old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we are going to delve into the absolute basics of a topic that deserves to be an entire podcast. Um, We're going to talk about alchemy and uh, some of the history of alchemy, some of where that word comes from, which I think is uh, paramount, really, to understanding uh, what it means, what it comes from. And eventually, what it became. And I think that's one of the more interesting things about alchemy, is that uh, it being a study of alchemical change and a system for understanding transmutation, whether that's symbolic or actual, uh, the art form itself ended up transforming into a couple of different things. And uh, I think they're all really exciting. I think it's really fascinating that anything uh, could really take that much of a directional shift. And so uh, the intention with this episode is going to be to just graze the surface level. This is kind of tying into a lot of the episodes that we've been doing lately that have just been talking about some of the basics and like laying a foundation for a little bit more of the complex topics, the complex conversations that are to come. And alchemy is an intense subject that uh, spans thousands of years, multiple cultures, Um entire civilizations that have come and faded away uh, into the background or even disappeared entirely uh, have put into the alchemical uh, experience the symbols that exist. And because of that, uh, it's picked up a lot over the years. Every time that it interacted with a different culture, it picked up some aspect of their own spirituality. And for an obvious reason, that has been really cool because it has enabled um, enabled itself to exist beyond the boundaries that are formed by countries and cultures. It's picked up a lot from everybody over the years. But that being said, when you're talking about anything that is thousands of years old and has thousands of years of tradition attached to it, it's changed a lot. It's developed a lot. It has... Um, had a lot of different phases, and one of the things that uh, that means is that there's no way we could possibly cover this entire topic. Um, I don't think that we could cover this entire topic if it was the sole focus of the show when we did a hundred episodes, um, and that that's kind of exciting, you know. To me, I, I really love when something has that kind of depth to it. That's really kind of what gets me up in the morning and, and gets me going is any kind of uh, occult practice that has a lot of depth. Um, so where do you start? Well, what is alchemy? I suppose is, is probably the best starting point. It's going to depend uh, what, what uh, culture you're looking at. It's going to depend on what type of alchemy that you're talking about. But... Simply put, alchemy is the study of change. It is the. um, It has often been wrapped in both science and pseudoscience, as well as being wrapped into spiritual symbolism, uh, belief, uh, religious belief, experiences with uh, angels and gods and uh, spirits and all, all sorts of stuff. But simply put it's it's the art of change and the dissecting of that change to better understand ourselves the components that make up us as well as the components that make up the physical universe the very mundane side of things um, and, and really to dissect a, a topic and change it into something else that being said Uh, It's pretty exciting for an occultist to get interested in alchemy. Um, The old version of alchemy as it kind of exists for the masses is uh, obviously really heavily tied around the concept of like the Philosopher's Stone and changing lead into gold. Uh, Those kinds of things were uh, goals that some individuals believe were real physical goals Uh, and there were some periods of history that we'll talk about where that was in fact the goal Um, but it has also been wrapped a lot into the spiritual progression of the individual uh, via symbols and ritual and those kinds of things Um, so to dig into what it is, I think, a really great starting point is to understand where that word comes from. So uh, alchemia was the Arabic word, and we'll talk a little bit about the history, and it'll be clear as to why we're using the Arabic word. Um, alchemia is the Arabic word for um, alchemy. And according to Sir E.A. Wallace Budge, he was an Egyptologist. He worked at the British Museum uh, in the 18 to 1900s very late 1800s to 1900s um, he as an Egyptologist did a lot of work with um, the British Museum's uh, collection that was heavily expanded after the um, the Suey Canal was uh, established and one of the reasons for that is because the Suey Canal um, was connecting the Mediterranean and the uh the indian ocean is that the indian ocean yeah the indian ocean um and that was a really exciting thing for the time period because before that was established the only trade route to trade with uh, india and the east uh, india was the really big one because they had all the spices Uh, You had to go all the way around the tip of Africa, all the way up around Africa, and then follow the coastline. Um, What they ended up doing was carving out a canal. Uh, It was a very long project, and it went through, connected the Nile with um, the Persian Gulf and, and those kinds of things. Now, what ended up happening during that period of time is what caused a lot of interest in Egyptian culture, because... Uh, while Egypt was, was there, they were aware that they had um, some ancient sites. Uh, they hadn't really thrown a lot of money and resources at it. And during the project that was the Sui Canal, the British ended up uh, briefly in rule of Egypt. And when that happened, they threw a bunch of money and resources, um, collecting, uh, collecting artifacts, um, doing archaeological digs, and really threw a lot of money at the uh, at the problem that was this this lost culture and trying to define this history. Now, uh, by no means would I say that everything that was accomplished during that period of time was uh, ethical or good the way that they uh, you know treated some of that uh, of that other country's um, archaeological record. But it, it did set the world's historical eyes on egypt and because of some of the things that were happening in that time period it very much expanded ancient egypt as a talking point for the wealthy and influential throughout uh, both europe and in particular uh, britain and what that meant was that you had some of the first experts in Egyptology. This is where uh, a lot of hieroglyphs were you know collected and studied. This is where a lot of the work on the different uh, religions that uh, existed over the many many thousands of years that the uh, Egyptian or the ancient Egyptian uh, empires had plural empires. It's very important to make that distinction um, but had had their rule. And uh, the gods that they worshipped in those times, the rituals, the secret societies, those types of things, uh, all started to kind of come to light and be a major talking point for everyone. And so um, Sir E.A. Wallace Budge was a very well-renowned Egyptologist working at the British Museum during this revival period of the 1800s to early 1900s when this was really kind of at its peak. And according to him... Um, The Arabic word which we have a lot more documentation about Arabic alchemy uh, than we do from some of the other cultures we'll talk about kind of why Um, obviously the Egypt reason is because the Egyptians had long been gone and were being rediscovered Um, but there were some other cultures that also uh, influenced alchemy before it made its way to the Arab world Uh, but the Arabs did a really great job at preserving and incorporating that alchemical history and so the word was most familiar from the arabic sense the arabic word alchemia a l uh hyphen and then kamiya k i m i y a uh he claimed uh as an Egyptologist and this is going to be really important detail that it meant the Egyptian science. And there is some evidence to suggest that that might potentially be the case. Uh, one of the reasons why is Khem, uh, uh K-H-E-M, or K-E-M, depending on how it's spelled because of what they're talking about. chem uh, is a word that describes a specific location in the Lower Nile. The Lower Nile is the northern region of ancient Egypt. Uh, they call it the Lower Nile because the Nile flows south to north into the Mediterranean. And so the lower end of the elevation, the lower end of the river, is the northern end of the country. So usually if we were looking at like a map in you know, a modern day, we would probably call it Upper Egypt. But the word lower, Egy- uh, R- lower Egypt or Lower Nile references the north region of Ancient Egypt. And it was around a specific city that we now have dubbed uh, Litopolis. Um, they used to use the word chem to describe that area, uh, the land of Chem, and some of the earliest mentions of the area that have been uh, discovered um, were from about 2,600 BC, which is like 4,600, 4,500 years ago, somewhere in that range, uh, over 4,000 years ago. Um, Chem is also a really important word in the Egyptian language because it also means black. And black, Um, well, the Egyptians had a different color system than everybody else has. Um, You can tell a lot by a culture by examining how they describe the world around them. And in the case of the Egyptians, there was only a couple of different colors. Uh, They had black and white. They had red. They had blue. Um, But red was a wide category that included several other colors, like Orange and yellows, uh, all of the warm colors, if that makes sense, were kind of looped together in one uh, descriptive word, and uh, the blues, purples, those types of things, greens were looped into another color, uh, being their word for blue. And uh, the reason why that's really important to understand is that each one of these colors was heavily associated to their worldview. And their religious symbolism, and the color black. Uh, while black is often associated in, like, modern spiritual terms to be like dark and spooky, you know, uh, black magic, those types of things, right? Uh, to the Egyptians, black was the color of life, and the reason for that is because well, one of the many reasons for that I shouldn't I shouldn't oversimplify, but one of the many reasons for that association is that. Um, the life-giving high-nutrient soil and silt and mud that would come off of the Nile because it was rushing you know, down a mountain and picking up all those nutrients and minerals as it went uh, is, is a very dark-colored and black-colored soil. And so they associated that color with being life-giving because when you're living in a desert and everything's... They used to call that the red land, Um, everything's red because, and remember, red covers all of their warm colors, so it covers red and orange and yellow. Think about, you're living in ancient Egypt, you're living in a desert, what area around you is red and orange and yellow? Well, it's it's the, the great deserts that are around you and they are a place of heat and death and just nothingness surrounding you, right? Whereas the black soil is where all of the plants grow that's where your farming is successful that's where you're able to uh, travel because you're next to the nile you're able to travel up and down the nile in order to interact with other cultures and so um, if you if you ever look at a map of ancient egypt there is an obvious reason why everything is right along the nile it's because there's water and there's this black soil that allows the growth of plants and so black in their in their culture would have been associated with life-giving bounty, while red would be the desert, the land of death. And uh, so, because of that, uh, when we hear things like um, the land of Chem, Chem being a description of the color black, uh, the land of Chem is a land of bounty, a land of fruitfulness, because of that black soil. And um, So uh, Kem, or Kamiya, according to the uh, Arabs, would have been um, a a description of the area. And then eventually, during a couple of specific points, they started referring to it as the land of Al-Kamiya, or al Kem. And that would have been pretty damn close to the idea of alchemy. Um, Now, this is not necessarily a widely accepted this has to be the only answer for the uh, etymology of that word Uh, and i think it's really important to understand that because when i was first introduced to alchemy my introduction to it was that it was an egyptian um, art form that it was passed down from culture to culture and that it had originated in the egyptian mystery schools that very well might be the case there are some other potential interpretations of the etymology of that word um, that also might be the case. It's also possible that it's only a partial truth that you know some of these things had come from uh, Egypt and some of these things had not. That you know, as it went from one culture to another, it had like a snowball gathered more snow to it and became a bigger art form. It's very possible. We're not really sure. Karl uh, August Frederick Mann. Uh, was an etymologist and a philologist, uh, or philologist? Yeah, a study of language. Um, he was a foreign language expert. Basically, he lived in Berlin in the early eighteen hundreds and late eighteen hundreds. He was a little bit. He he was born before Budge, but uh, they did have some some a time period where they their careers were both existing at the same time. They were alive at the same time, and uh, Karl Mann was probably most known for his work in Webster's in eighteen sixty four he worked for Webster's and um, did quite a lot of work on the etymology of different words a lot of that was uh, established by him and he actually commented on Budge's work and said that he believed that Budge's work was actually folk etymology meaning that it was um, that it was fake etymology that it was um, uh, the mythological history of the word and not the actual history of the word. And Karlman was well, well known for uh, sussing out these types of details from uh, language. Uh, he agreed that alchemia was the source of the word alchemy, but he commented on uh, Budge's translation to say that it is more likely that it was a Greek word Um, specifically stemming from the word of the Greeks, kamea, which was the art of alloying metals. And I think that makes a little bit more sense and we'll kind of unpackage a little bit of why. Although, while we're unpackaging why, it will continue to, at certain points, go back to Egypt. Um, I do think that man was a little bit more on point and the reason why i say that is because a lot of the symbols that exist within alchemy um, tend to be in line with some of the symbols that exist in the greek culture their uh, religious practices a great example of this is that a lot of um, greek alchemical systems uh, originate around or even modern day alchemical systems originate around the elements and the elements is a Greek system for understanding Um, a a very famous uh, and very old writing of the elements and the descriptions of the elements came from Aristotle for example Um, so it it would make a lot of sense that either it picked up those details when it was in the care of the Greeks uh, or that it was originally from the Greeks and alchemy being this study of metals being cast together it would make a lot of sense that uh, it would be highly related to metalworking from the word Kamiya so um, so where does that lead us? So it leads us to two major cultures and those two cultures spent a decent amount of time separate from each other but also a decent amount of time as one single empire. There was Periods of time, uh, Caesar's period of time, uh, the period of um, Cleopatra and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, uh, where uh, Egypt was actually ruled by Greece, that um, they were one culture. And in that time period, they traded a lot, a lot, a lot of ideas. And so it's very, very possible that some of that line gets more blurred than it already was because we're trying to look back through time into two cultures that blended together for a period of time. Alchemy probably uh, is older than the, the Greco-Egyptian um, period. However, it's very difficult to separate those two cultures and their histories out once they were blended unless you have the opportunity to look at them through the lens of another culture that was around them um, because they did get so mixed together. So the history of alchemy is going to depend a lot on which version you're looking at. Um, Egyptian alchemy in general is hard to pin down because Egyptian culture in in general was very veiled by mystery schools. Not to say that the Greeks didn't have their mystery schools and absolutely love them, but... um, there's a little bit more record of the Greek mystery schools now in an archeological sense. And so it's easier for us to get to the details of it. Whereas the Egyptian alchemists, um, there's not as much surviving information. Um, the Greek alchemists, I, I would make an argument that, uh, Greek alchemy starts at about the same time as the bronze age. And that makes a lot of sense because if we're talking about a culture finding this, Magic that exists in the physical world, where they took one thing and they mixed it in with another thing and they made a new thing, um, and it being metals, that that to me makes a lot of sense as the origin of alchemy being um, have to do with making alloys. And uh, and to kind of give you an idea of what I mean by that, I I, th- I think that specifically the first couple of alloys were probably discovered on accident someone makes a forge they live in an ancient society we're all aware that if you melt down this rock you get tin if you melt down that rock you get copper and tin's really really moldable and you can turn it into a whole bunch of stuff and it works really good for that kind of stuff and and copper's a little bit harder but it's also very moldable they're both really kind of soft metals you know you 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 can uh feasibly shape uh copper with just a rock you know um but let's say you're smelting tin one day and you forget to clean out the furnace and then you smelt copper the next day these are things that those cultures would have known how to do around that time period which would have been like the bronze age starts in like uh 3200 bc long time ago in the greeks um and uh that's about the time period where we see alchemy kind of start to pop up in the greek culture um but if you if you suddenly were cleaning out and And you were like, oh, where's the copper that I just smelted? Oh, that's weird. i left that tin in there. I forgot about that. And you go to brush off this, you know, this, this, uh, this glob of, you know, metal that you've just melted down and you go, which one is this tin or the copper? Oh, that's interesting. It's neither. It's actually kind of like a shiny gold like substance. It's, uh, it's a totally different thing. And then you go to try to, you know, bang on it to see what the properties of this metal are and it's harder than the tin and it's harder than the copper it's weird because all that's been in there is tin and copper why would this thing be um you know harder than both of them combined that doesn't make any sense that's like if i was uh mixing i don't know what are two really fragile things glass and peanut brittle and i mixed them together and suddenly it's as hard as steel, it would kind of blow your mind, because you'd think to yourself, especially if you don't understand chemistry, because remember, these cultures do not understand chemistry. Uh, You can't understand molecular bonding and those kind of things. You can just understand like, yeah, I mean, usually when I mix things together, they're pretty similar to the components that they started with. And in this case, I got something that's better than both of the components. That's, That's crazy. And now you can make tools that last longer and they're prettier and they sell for more to the, you know, people around you and, it it probably did feel like magic. It probably was a very magic situation, to these people. Um, it would not blow my mind if the Greeks discovering bronze and alloys similar to it. Um, they had they had quite a few actually. They, there was um, there was this mix of gold and um, gold and silver that was used in some of the first gold coins because it made them harder. Uh, elect- Electrillium, elect, I can't remember what it was called, um, but but there was a, there was another alloy that was gold and silver mixed together. So it wouldn't surprise me if uh, you know as that culture is starting to experiment with alloying metals, that there came a spiritual process about casting those things together. Um, another thing that has to do with the Greek alchemical systems, there is a man named uh, Diocletian. He decrees in 300 AD that the ancient writings of the Egypts of, as he calls, Ev Kamiya, the transmutation of gold and silver, are uh, to be outlawed. He he decrees that they are bad. And this is during the period of time where Alexandria is this powerhouse for uh, knowledge in general. I mean, they were literally allowing anybody to dock in their ships, and then they would Seize all of the scrolls that were on these ships, make copies of them, give the original scroll back, and then store the scroll in the library. And so during this period of time, Alexandria is a i mean a powerhouse for knowledge, and the culture is also obsessed with alchemy during this period. you know they they there is a incredibly strong chance. Now, obviously, we don't know everything that was in the Library of Alexandria. We, 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 History will forever weep at the loss of that kind of archaeological information because they had collected information from all of the world around them. And uh, I generally believe that that had all had value to us nowadays as we try to understand these ancient cultures. Um, but we know for sure that much of the history of alchemy was destroyed in that incident that when the library of Alexandria was lit on fire, uh, by a man who was trying to, uh, he was trying to secure his, um, his name in the history books. That's the most terrible part. He did it just so that the world would remember him. It's a terrifying reason to do something so terrible, but, um, yeah, in that burning, we, we probably lost most of the history of alchemy. And we kind of rely on allegory for everything after that period. Or, I'm sorry, everything before that period. We have documentation of after that period, but uh, that makes it really difficult to know what really happened. Um, during this period, there's, uh, there's an uprising in Alexandria, Of individuals who were practicing these Hermetic sciences, and that's what led uh, Diocletian to decree that alchemy was bad. Uh, And eventually, after he had decreed that and the temple had been burned, the library of Alexandria was burned, it um, well, we we don't, we lost a lot of that and we'll never really get it back. But the Greek word for uh, Kamiya regarding the creation of Alagoas is much older than that incident. And so it's it's highly possible that that's where a lot of that had originated. It's difficult to say. Um, And one thing that I will say about specifically the history of alchemy in particular is that that period of time is very hard to see past. Um, We just don't have a perfect record beyond that. And so when someone makes claims because they're trying to publish a book here in a modern era and they say the fantastical things like, "Ah, yes, it was tracked back to the Egypt. Uh, It was tracked to the Greek culture. It's it's very a complicated uh, thing to make those kind of claims. And I think that people throw those kind of claims around in order to come off as an expert. The truth is we do not know. Uh, But that we have taken some clues as to exactly where, but they weren't the only ones that were uh, fucking around with the idea of um, alchemy, transmutation of gold or transmutation of gold. Um, the idea of like making a philosopher stone-like thing that grants health; those kinds of things. Um, really, a lot of cultures in that time period. and and that's another reason why i think that a lot of it should be looked at through the perspective of the bronze age is because a lot of these things start to be talking points for cultures as they enter or peak during the bronze age so different cultures went through their bronze age individually depending on how much contact they had with the world around them and almost always the the study of alchemy happens during the bronze age of that culture So examples would be like India, uh, Chinese, uh, the the China, the Chinese, um, Islam, of course, and uh, the Arabic world, uh, Taoism, Shintoism, all of these cultures, all these religions had a point where they had mixed together the idea and goal of transmuting metals into gold, lesser metals into gold, and, Mixed their own spiritual ideas into the symbolism of what that means. Um, a decent example of that is the Chinese. They, they went through a very, very similar period. And one thing that's very interesting is that a lot of the same things are believed amongst both cultures, even though they're separated by, you know, 400, 500 years. Uh, and a lot of distance, um, the, there is a lot of uh, overlap in some of the symbols and some of the beliefs, uh, and definitely in the goal of making valuable metal out of not valuable metal. It's a very um, central idea to alchemy in general. Um, another, uh, another thing that, that kind of ties into that algorical uh, origin point is that the Egyptians at one point claimed that um, interdimensional travelers, you know, god beings, or not necessarily gods, but enlightened beings from another dimension had stepped into their world and lived with them for a period of time, and that some of these uh, understandings of mathematics and metallurgy um, had originated from those individuals. Now, I'm not making the claim that that's true. I think that it's probably um, a mythology. However, it is interesting, as we'll talk about the transition from alchemy into chemistry, that if you did live in a, a society that was scientifically capable of jumping between dimensions, and this you know, primitive culture is trying to ask you about the secrets of the universe, that you might point them in the direction of chemistry, being the formation of... Uh, structure of matter that would kind of be a universal truth that would exist that you might potentially get them cued in on and then them and their misunderstanding would would probably try to tie in their own religion uh, and symbols into said exploration of chemistry. So it is is interesting if nothing else that that is where they claim that their uh, sciences came from. Uh, Right at the beginning of their Bronze Age, the very, very beginning of what we would consider to be ancient Egypt. Um, So, mostly, when we attribute the start of Western alchemy, we attribute it as being the merging of the cultures of Hellenistic Greece and uh, Hellenistic Egypt, and that being that alexandria-driven culture of knowledge and uh, religion and philosophy and this is a really important point is uh, a lot of um, this period gets tied into philosophy because philosophy for the greeks is very uh, of a spiritual nature you know it is it is a spiritual conquest uh, and so while it's possible that a lot of these things were being practiced in secret and passed on, um, it is also highly possible that Hellenistic Egypt uh, was one of the very first cultures to really be um, you know, experimenting with the alchemical systems. And individuals during this period uh, are really interesting because... <laughs> They they accidentally cause a whole bunch of misconceptions because they were using pseudonyms of famous people. Like for example, uh, in uh, Alexandria there were a couple. There was there was a there was a Jewish alchemist. His name was Moses. His actual name was not Moses. He went by Moses as a reference to you know the uh, Jewish prophet Moses, and uh, that has led to now in a modern day as people kind of skim the surface of alchemical history and they're interested and they might not understand quite as much about how people were using pseudonyms of famous people. Um, I have heard before, I before I learned of um, the, the Alexandrian uh, Jewish alchemist Moses, um, I had heard that, you know, Moses was an alchemist and that is most likely a uh, misunderstanding from, individuals um you know skimming the surface of history and not digging into the details another example of that is cleopatra right um there was a a female alchemist she went by the name cleopatra she was probably alive at about the same time that cleopatra was alive but cleopatra was famous enough that it it, uh it kind of worked um the cleopatra the alchemist living in um alexandria was is the individual who we attribute to having invented the alembic the Alembic is that, um, that uh, glass uh, It almost looks like a seed. It's kind of like teardrop-shaped. It's like a big bowl with a, a teardrop uh, on the top and and then a stem that bends off and, and pours whatever the vapor is into another jar. Uh, that's the basis of distillations and uh, several other chemical processes. And we still, you know, we we use more elegant systems now, but... That alembic very much is one of the very first um, tools to be used uh, for chemistry, and that was invented by a woman in ancient Alexandria who was practicing alchemy and publishing papers under the name uh, under the pseudonym Cleopatra. So I think that's a fascinating period of time. So eventually, all right. So Alexandria, super interesting time period. A lot's going on there. Uh, it really is this um, just uh, budding culture there. And after uh, Diocletian uh, decrees it is bad because of very possibly those same alchemists um, kind of pushing an uprising in Alexandria, um, eventually um, it is, uh, I mean, there's book burning. It is, it is destroyed uh, specifically uh, by that group during about 300 ad so um what ends up happening is the islamic world um gets some of those books as people are trying to hide them from the book burning they start trying to send them off to other countries and during this period there's this massive shift of alchemical knowledge from greece to um to the Islamic world and there it gets really incorporated. It's not uh, this, uh, secret society type thing. It's, it's much more, uh, protected, talked about revered, uh, type of a, type of a, a practice. And so there's a lot of documentation that has survived. They were really, really good at record keeping. And we have a lot more from that time period where a lot was destroyed from the Egyptian and Greco cultures. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's really important to understand the Arabic root of the word uh, al- uh, alchemia, because they're kind of the first ones that are like calling it alchemy. I mean, they're calling it alchemy, but you know, they're they're, they're the first ones that are really kind of diving into that, uh, and they're publishing books on it, and they are reintroducing uh, Platonic and Aristotelian ideas. The philosophies are starting to enter because as these things are escaping uh, that culture. Uh, they're dragging with them the things that they believe to be meaningful, and in that case, philosophy, as we kind of stated, was, you know, believed to be a, a very um, divine practice. You know, it was very important, and I would I would argue that they are correct. You know, um, there was a uh, author that I read recently uh, named Ryan Holiday. He's currently alive. He's a, uh, he studies philosophy, and one of the opening lines of his book was that the only reason to study philosophy is to become a better person. And I, I gotta say, I agree with that statement. I, I think that that's a, a fascinating idea. And so as the study of alchemy and the spiritual practice that is alchemy was escaping uh, the destruction in Greece, it was dragging along with it some of the philosophy that their culture had you know, celebrated. So uh, there's a period of time now with this islamic world uh where they're they're experimenting with their own ideas they're adding in their own beliefs of their own religion and and kind of tying in um a lot of their culture into it so eventually medieval europe we're zooming forward quite a bit gets exposed to alchemy after some arabic translations finally make their way to europe Uh, in specific one of the very first ones is robert chester's translation of what's called the book of composition of alchemy um Robert Chester's book is probably one of the first uh, translations brought to medieval Europe and it, in a lot of people's opinion, is the start of what we would consider to be Western alchemy because this kind of starts the discussion for everybody else. Um, it, it Medieval Europe, a couple hundred years, uh, a long period, but it ends up going through a really interesting and fascinating um, exploration of these ideas because they were tied into just enough spiritual ideas to not come off as witchcraft sometimes during certain periods but then in other periods they were considered to be dangerous and so medieval Europe both celebrates in the beginning and, and uh, really kind of plays around with these ideas starts to mix their own religious ideas into it so now they're talking more about Christian uh, symbolism um, and that kind of leaves its mark on it but eventually it gets to the point where medieval europe goes as far as to have alchemical licensing where like it is illegal it's against the law without a license to um, to uh, attempt to transmute gold even just to attempt it is like a crime because if you were to pull it off you might throw off the local economy or you might be a poor person and now you're suddenly privileged those kind of things would very much be disruptive towards um, medieval europe's culture and many of these uh, alchemical licenses were actually um, granted. Uh, we have a lot of records still to this day of some of the licenses that were granted by um, Richard, King Richard Sixth. King Richard Sixth had uh, signed off on several alchemical licenses for some individuals. Um, this is the time period in medieval Europe where we're here uh, the famous names of like Roger Bacon, Nicholas Flamel. Um, L- Nicholas Flamel is a great talking point, really quick. Uh, real individual, probably not as successful of an alchemist as he's made out to be. Um, Nicholas Flamel publishes some works. They're pretty decent. And then everyone who hasn't made a name for themselves starts publishing their work as Nicholas Flamel. Um kind of like a reverse ghostwriter situation where everybody's like, uh, instead of him reaching out to others to publish books under his name, everyone's doing it without his permission in order to, you know, attach their grand ideas onto the absolutely legendary name that is Nicholas Flamel. And, um, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with his name from, uh, fiction, uh, like, uh, the Harry Potter series and those kinds of things. Uh, definitely made a pretty solid name for himself. Um, Roger Bacon, also an excellent alchemist, ended up doing quite a bit of work into um, some of the more Judeo-Christian concepts being tied into alchemy during the medieval period. Um, After this period, we have what I would consider to be the golden age of alchemy. And it, it happens quite a bit later. It happens when these sets of symbols these schools of thought and this this tradition of experimenting with physical matter with plants with metals with by the time it makes it to to renaissance Europe uh, it is uh, not just about metallurgy anymore it is about the study of the spiritual nature and physical matter that makes up the universe and it is basically indistinguishable from science in this time period so any of the massive scientists that exist in the renaissance period are probably alchemists uh because it's not like hey i'm a scientist oh i choose to do alchemy instead it's like the word science means alchemy and also science they're they're completely intertwined they are one single art form um this is where you see names like um uh, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton was an alchemist from this time period, as well as uh, John Dee. John Dee uh, and Edward Kelly are probably most well known for their Enochian magical system and the uh, being the court wizard, specifically John Dee being the court wizard of Queen Elizabeth. Um, but John Dee himself, during that time period, would have been one of the single most educated men in the world. He had access to the royal courts entire library, and did more for education, establishing some of the first long-running universities, um, and he himself was a pretty avid alchemist. So at this period, you kind of see what's going to become of alchemy, and I think this is really fascinating because uh, this is kind of the golden age. One of the other things that makes this the golden age is that um, Rudolf II, Rudolf II is the Holy Roman Emperor, uh in Prague he is king of throughout his career he's king of like five different countries uh the title that he holds the longest is the Holy Roman Emperor but um I mean there was a point where he was ruling over Croatia and a point that he was ruling over uh Bohemia and some other areas as well um he is um not necessarily held only in good regard (laughs) um generally he's considered to be on the politics side of things a little bit on the incompetent side but he himself was uh, very interested in the occult very interested in alchemy and founded a very interesting uh scientific revolution that started in prague because prague was um, this this hub of trade routes and it was great if you were an alchemist, and you lived on a trade route, and you were trying to get like your hands on some weird Chinese plant, or some weird Russian plant, or some weird Greek plant. You know, Greek plant, or you know that if you were right next to all the trade routes that kind of went right through the center of Europe, and you know Prague is very central in Europe, um, you uh, would find yourself surrounded by the cultures, the books, the materials, and most importantly, the rare elements and um, scientific concepts that were coming from each one of these different cultures and traveling through your city and you could buy them really quick and go back to your little hidey hole underneath your house and go back to uh, studying alchemy. Um, This alchemical golden age in Prague is so well renowned that to this day they are still finding alchemical labs that were Uh, you know, sealed off within Prague, underneath the city, underneath certain buildings, hidden within, you know, all sorts of places. Um, They just found one the other day that I read an article about that was fascinating because it's photographs of this completely undisturbed, you know, uh, I I mean, not completely undisturbed, but they discovered it, they fixed it up, and they are now doing tourist uh, renovation or tourist, they're doing tours through it so that you can see kind of connect to that history um so Prague, to me really is the golden age of alchemy um because you have individuals like uh rudolph ii even brought john Dee and edward kelly into his court paid for his research and allowed him to practice alchemy pretty openly <laughs> you know uh which was an awesome time to exist and be surrounded by all these individuals and during that golden age, we also get like a whole bunch of fluff. There's a whole bunch of people just trying to make a name for themselves. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's a really solid mix of people taking it very, very seriously and knowing their history very well. And some fluffy people just trying to make a quick buck or sell uh, fake manuscripts uh, in other languages or those types of things. Uh, definitely the golden age. So, all right, we've talked a little bit about the alchemical history, all these different cultures that was passed from one culture to the next culture to the next culture. How is alchemy different from chemistry, right? And, and if you're starting to ask those kind of questions, that, then you're starting to understand what alchemy is. Um, it is the foundation of scientific thought. It is the foundation of experimentation, the scientific method and those kinds of things. In the beginning, it is tied so heavily into religion that it takes a very, very long time, thousands of years, to be separated from uh, those types of things. But once you get to, like, the late 1500s, they start to separate out the laboratory experimentation from the spiritual symbolism and make two different separate art forms. So... Before the late 1500s, if you're practicing alchemy, it probably is a solid mix of experimentation with metals, experimentation with physical matter and chemistry, and the spiritual symbolism that can be gained from, um, I mean, a a lot of different sources. This is also, uh, that golden age is also where you see, like, it get merged with Kabbalah and Hermeticism and the occult and those types of things. It's all kind of happening in that time period. And so, um, by the time it makes it to the late 1500s, they start to separate out. Here's all the spiritual symbolism that got mixed together from all over the world over here. And here's the laboratory experimentation that's helping us to understand chemistry. And that's actually where the word chemistry comes from. It comes from alchem chemistry, right? (laughs) It's they're very related concepts, um, I think that's one of the most profound things about alchemy, is that uh, it started off as this spiritual uh, attempt to understand the physical properties of the universe. And eventually, because people were trying to prove each other or disprove each other's manuscripts, it formulated the scientific method, and then alchemy itself transmuted into the art of chemistry and the art of science. So it's really a magical thing when you have this old mode of thinking that by the very process of experimenting with it, eventually gets separated out uh, into, and changed into something more pure and something more valuable. Uh, I think it's incredible, right? It's, it's almost uh, an, a very elegant thing to say that, you know, alchemy transmuted itself into chemistry. Uh, one thing that I think is really funny about that time period is uh, one of the... Think about the classical pictures that are an alchemist sitting in his lab working his magical experiments. One of the first images that will probably come to mind is someone with a distillation set. And what a distillation set is, is it's, you know, you, you have something mixed into a liquid, usually water, and you're heating and boiling that up, and then it's turning into a distillate, an air, uh, you know, a, a vapor, And then it's dropping down, cooling, and condensing into a more pure version. It leaves most of the things in the first jar. And now you have this pure uh thing in the second jar, this this other substance that is more concentrated and um is usually made up of only some of the components that the first thing was. And that's kinda what happened to alchemy. Is it you know, it goes through these these periods where you're putting a whole bunch of things in, and then it goes through this period where different cultures are like really putting the fire to it, you know, trying to see how this works and that scientific method starts to really unfold. And then eventually you get this distillate at the end that is the actual real world scientific method and chemistry and look around you. How much has your life been benefited by alchemy? I mean, we're only having this conversation because of the material sciences uh, <laughs> having been advanced so far. So, I think it's a really magical period of time for sure. It's very interesting. Okay, so that's how it's different from alchemy. That's what the actual history is. But you didn't come here to listen to me ramble on for three hours about, you know, the history of it. And trust me, I have left out almost all of the history because there is no way that we could. Uh, ever dive into each one of the individuals and their works and all of those types of things especially on a single episode um, but you came to learn something about alchemy I'm sure <laughs> so one of the one of the key concepts of alchemy is this idea that uh, shows up in the uh, tablets of Hermes um, Hermes trimis- uh, Trimiscus Uh he is uh hermes the thrice great three times great uh he's a character that sometimes gets related to the greek god hermes and sometimes gets related to the uh, egyptian god thoth uh, the ibis bird of knowledge and alchemy and written word and science and those kinds of things um Sometimes that, uh, there are individuals who believe that he was a real individual, and there are individuals who believe that he is purely myth. But at some point, there was this belief that there were uh, some tablets that he had written, as well as some other things, um, quite extensive writings, that had inspired much of this work. And so you will often hear uh, references to Hermes, or the Hermeticism is a reference to Hermes. Uh, those types of things and he wrote in the emerald tablets if he existed he wrote as above so below and as above so below is a slight simplification of what he wrote Now, in the modern translations of what documents claim to be record of the original emerald tablets and who knows if that's uh, true or false um, the second line in there is something close to the effect of as above so below it's uh as the effect above then it so is the effect below something along those lines but in modern day it gets it gets abbreviated to as above so below and that's that concept of um things in the larger cosmic scale being similar and connected to those in the smaller microcosmic scale. It's the connection of macrocosmic and microcosmic. It's the principle by which we make all changes in the universe, but in specific occult changes, magical changes. It's the belief that everything is connected, and that as you make changes below in the smaller system, it affects the larger system. And as you The larger system goes through changes it affects the smaller system and that's kind of the principle of things like um alchemy where you might symbolically do something and see a change out in your universe out in your world as you go about your life but it's also the system of all the occult stuff it's the system of doing a ritual and doing you know i say certain words and act in certain way and do a certain thing on my altar and then i expect that the universe will be affected by that uh, or going the other direction astrology you know this planet moves over here to this position and that now affects the smaller side of the scale and so that's kind of that concept of as above so below you probably heard it from uh just more mainstream uh magic wicca often brings it up um i've even i mean there's like albums and songs and uh, stuff like that. They're all oriented around as above, so below. It's its definitely not a phrase that uh, is unheard of in the occult world. That's where it comes from. It comes from alchemy. And you'll see it um, in certain systems. Um, so if you look at images of like the tarot cards, for example, if you look at the Arthur Edward Waite deck, the A.E. Waite deck, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's the Weight Rider deck. Well, yeah, it was a White and Rider. Okay, yeah. Uh, the the Weight Rider deck, which is the standard tarot deck. Go look at the card that is the Magician. And then also go look at the card that is, I don't know, the Devil, I believe, has that same posture. But, you know, there's there's several images of someone with one hand pointing up and one hand pointing down. That's the universal unspoken symbol for as above, so below. You also see this with the depictions of Baphomet, the goat-headed uh, occult deity. Uh, he sits on the earth and points up and points down. And so that is... Uh, and, and that's not even the only reference to uh, alchemy that's on that symbol of Baphomet. That Baphometic image is uh, attributed to um, Eliphas Levi. Um, he uh, Born Alphonse Louis Constant... Uh, Elihu levi published uh quite a few works that were alchemical in nature he he comes much later, but his work was heavily influenced by individuals like roger bacon uh john Dee, and those those types of individuals most uh, very much influenced by roger bacon um so oh and and yeah we'll talk about that in a minute but um so obviously this is not going to be an exhaustive list but I want to dive into some of the actual symbols. So you have that quote as above, so below, and then we should dive into the symbols themselves. Now we've done a couple of different symbols episodes. We talked about the planets. We talked about the elements. I would argue that the elements and the planets are both things that heavily get used in alchemy, um, but that they kind of are their own symbols as well. So there are going to be a couple of times where I kind of point out, Hey, did you notice that this symbol is also this other symbol? That's totally going to happen. Um, But I would not think of them that direction. I would think of them the other direction. I would think of them as like, hey, a lot of the symbols that are the planets were probably taken from alchemy. Not a lot of the symbols that are alchemy were probably taken from the planets. (laughs) Um, Very, very much. uh, Just getting to some of the core concepts that are the hermetic sciences in general. Uh, The very first set of symbols that I'd like to talk about is the Tria Prima a Tria Prima or a Tria Prima. It's Latin for the Three Primes. The Three Primes are first mentioned in Opus uh, Peramirium. uh It was written by Paracelsus, and he was in the early 1500s. Uh, Paracelsus heavily influenced the occult because he heavily influenced lifeus Levi, and Olyphus Levi heavily influenced uh, individuals like Aleister Crowley, Um, Samuel Mathers, uh, Waite, you know, a a lot of individuals, especially if they were involved in the Golden Dawn, were heavily influenced by Eliphas Levi, and a lot of Eliphas Levi's um, interest in um, like the uh, gnomes and the sylphs and those kinds of things that comes from Paracelsus. Uh, Paracelsus also was the first to mention the, the Three Primes, and the idea of the three primes were three symbols, the salt, mercury, and sulfur. Now, they're not necessarily, they're not necessarily like um, physical symbols, uh, the way that like, uh, similar to how we've talked about the elements. We're not always talking about physical fire. You might use fire in a ritual in order to symbolize everything that fire stands for in the occult. But uh, when we're talking about salt, we're not talking about like actual physical salt, except for the times that we are. I suppose I should mention that uh for example when somebody is writing out a uh, alchemical treaty sometimes they will leave instructions and they will capitalize salt and they're probably talking about the spiritual concept that is salt but if it's lowercase they might mean take some table salt and mix it in for this chemical reaction and that's one of the reasons why these old manuscripts can be very complicated to break down because number one they're they're writing obscuring things in them but then number two they're uh are using these kinds of things to protect themselves from being persecuted for witchcraft. Um, So uh, salt, mercury, and sulfur. Now mercury in the case of alchemy, we are more talking about quicksilver, the liquid metal. We are much less talking about the planet. Some of, some of a lot of the symbols between mercury and mercury are going to be related, but they are two separate things. Um, so salt is the crystallized, uh, form of something, something that's permanent, right? Mercury is the concept of like the flow of things, the very, you know, something that could take one shape could take another shape. It's very flowy. It's hard to pin down. It's, uh, transforming constantly. That would be like a mercurial concept, and then sulfur is that which burns. Sulfur is a fantastic element for burning. Um, it, uh, I mean, we use it in gunpowder, you know. <laughs> Still to this day, <laughs> it, uh, it, is in in the tria prima. Um, sulfur is that which starts the reaction. It's the passion that begins the thing, you know. So really, it's, if anything, it's inappropriate that I brought up sulfur last. It should have been the first of the Tria Prima listed. If they were to have an order, which they do not, but if they were to have an order, it would be sulfur, mercury, salt. Um, so it starts that breaking down process, and then it is in its mercurial state, and then it eventually coagulates into its perfected... Well, it's not to say salt is perfect. It's more permanent state. And um, it's believed currently that... Uh, Percelsus's, um Tria Prima was based off of the concept of observing physical matter during breaking things down. And uh, in specific, sulfur is that which burns. There, When you light something on fire and you observe it, there's three major things that happen. Number one, something burns. It breaks down, it catches on fire, and it uh, starts the reaction. Right? then there's something that doesn't burn, right? If you burn wood, you get ash. That's like the thing that is more permanent. It was not destroyed by the fire. It is there afterwards. And back then they believed that it was in there the whole time. They didn't understand the chemical changes that are happening. So they thought, okay, we start the reaction with sulfuric things. Salt is the things that are not burning. It's the permanent things. And then that which rises up, the smoke, the fumes, the... You know, those, the, the things that turn gaseous and float away are that mercurial concept. And so a lot of things in the Tria Prima are broken down into these types of uh, three primal um, forces. So it's not to say that it's just from observing Burning that we would come up with these symbols, but that would be one example, right? And that's where we think he was inspired. It would also be things out in the universe, things believing that, you know, there's three different ways that energy interacts. And this is kind of what the Indians believed. India Indians, not Native American Indians. Um, The Indians had some concepts that had to do with energy and the different states that energy could exist in. And one of them is the more permanent, one of them is the more flux, you know, constantly in motion. And one of them is more the start of a reaction, the bang that, you know, begins a thing. And so um, when we're talking about the Tria Prima, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about how all these different reactions can, you know, can have aspects that are the permanents, that are the flowy state, and that are the boom reaction that gets everything started. Um, So that's what the Tria Prima is. Now, uh, eventually they also start talking about Metals makes sense and the different metals hold their own associations and these associations overlap extremely heavily with the planets with the symbols that are the planets and so there's when we're talking about alchemy we it's, it's I wouldn't say foolish but it's um, it's miss I don't know what lo- word I'm looking for um, it's, it's, it's a misnomer. It's a mis idea. Um, you could have gotten a lot deeper of an idea if you looked at it, the process of moving from one to the other and a lot less of here's this one thing. So when we're talking about these metals, think of it as a process of starting with lead and getting to gold. Don't think of it as, this is the symbol that's lead. This is the symbol that's tin. Think of it as first we're at lead, then we're at tin, then we're at, look at the big picture that the process of change from the one to the other that's a much better way to explore with alchemy and with these types of systems so you start off at your very very base most worthless metal that is lead lead is not especially interesting um when it's as plentiful as it is and in that time period as cheap as it is and um it, it it just can't be made into a whole lot of things it's not very valuable Uh, It's pretty heavy, Um, so lead gets associated with like Saturn being, you know, uh, Saturn is you know the ideas of like responsibility, restriction, discipline, those kinds of things. You know, generally, lead is uh, tied into those same concepts, and the same way that Saturn is associated with things that are um, restrictive and kind of a it's it's the taking your medicine day it's you're definitely not eating cake on a saturn day you're like doing what you have to your responsibilities it's kind of like oh god i have to do this but you're right i do need to pay my bills it's important that i do that uh lead is kind of associated with a lot of those kinds of feelings but it's also in alchemy associated with like the human soul so as we talk about these things it's not always necessarily that we're talking about transmuting physical matter into physical matter sometimes we're talking about symbolically taking a person through spiritual changes and so lead is that initial state of mankind and it led is your imperfect soul you kind of suck dude you know like you, you 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 just got out of you know you just entered adulthood you just got out of high school you 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 sometimes make the choice to steal or to lie or to be shitty to people and sometimes you lose your temper and Sometimes you don't, you know, there's a whole person in there. Sometimes you make great choices, but you don't have a lot of experience and you're not very valuable to the world. You're not very valuable to yourself yet. And you think you know everything and you don't, you know, lead is that lead is in alchemy. It's that, that starting point that is kind of the bullshit, right? Then lead is transformed into tin. And we'll talk about some of that process, but remember we're talking um, metaphorically. I personally do not subscribe to the idea that physical alchemy uh, was ever accomplished in that way. There were, much, 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 much later, uh, some physicists that uh, did manage to turn the element of lead into the element of gold using a process that they dubbed nuclear transmutation. Uh, but it's, it's it's nuclear chemistry, and it's... It, Incredibly expensive. It takes way more money and resources to get the lead to gold than it would to just buy the gold in the first place. So uh, that's why you don't hear more about it, but it has been accomplished. You can change one element into another and someone did make lead into gold. Um, we're not talking about that usually when we're talking about alchemy. We're talking much more about the spiritual symbolism of taking the soul into the next stage. And going through each one of those stages because there's a benefit to the individual and eventually you can get to that gold that that perfect self so as we transmute lead we transmute it into tin because you can't go straight from lead to gold you have to go through some of these stages tin is associated with the concept of the jupiter concepts it is uh, freedom it is business it is expansion it is those types of things you know And uh, as far as tin goes, I personally think that that kind of makes a little bit of sense. Tin is probably one of the most easily malleable and uh, things you can buy a a decent amount of tin and and then make it into a whole bunch of other shit and sell those things. So it it makes a lot of sense about that being an expanding process. You can also take tin, mix it into copper and make bronze and make things better. So tin is often used to make um, something go farther, something be better. Then we transmute tin into iron. Iron is Mars. It is war. It is assertiveness and division. Masculinity. It's cardio, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Um, It is that ever-striving forward on a warlike path. But that's where all the conquest is. That's where all the uh, accomplishments are. All of your accomplishments are accomplished through Mars, whether you realize it or not um iron being associated with mars makes a lot of sense because iron is uh what you make well it's one of the things that the ancient worlds used to make swords out of um weapons and those types of things but uh iron is incredibly useful for those types of things so each level up we're going to be using a slightly more useful metal that's kind of part of this process then you transmit that iron into copper and copper Is associated with the planet Venus. It is the feminine, receptive uh, bounty and growth and money, and um, you know, it's the fruit tree. It's uh, that which gives over and over and over again. Copper is one of the earlier tools that were. uh, They think that mostly copper tools were used to build the pyramids. So uh, you can accomplish quite a bit as an ancient culture with access to copper tools. Um, We still use a ton of copper in providing bounty into our homes Um, a lot of copper pipes bring your water and I'm sure how you can see how the concepts of feminine receptive energy is being associated with water but also you know growth and uh, having enough of something could be associated with that that relief of drinking water meanwhile I'm going to have a sip of water because I'm kind of thirsty ah Next, the copper is transmuted into mercury, Quicksilver. Um, Now, mercury is an incredibly interesting element if you know metallurgy, because you can use mercury to pull more valuable metals out of stuff, because it makes alloys, and then you can separate out the mercury from the alloy. So, like, that's one of the ways that you pull gold out of rocks, is you soak those rocks in mercury. And then you, uh, you know, you can grind them up and heat them up in a way that the gold attaches to the mercury instead of attaching to the rock. And then you can uh, get rid of the mercury and have gold. So, it makes sense that as we're getting up there. But it's also a flowy mystic metal that... You know, can take any shape because it's a liquid, and it uh, you know gets associated with things like transformations in the mind and flowy things and uh, those uh, stages. You know, and and mercury in the metals is highly related to the symbol that is that it is in the uh, in the Tria Prima, but it kind of is its own thing when we're talking about the metals. So it's probably important to kind of make that justification and then uh, you know mercury is associated planetarily with the planet mercury and the planet mercury has a lot of the same associations with it so that makes a lot of sense eventually you take that mystical mercury that they used to believe would give you immortal life but really just gave you mercury poisoning (laughs) and uh you you uh, transmute it into silver. It's pretty close to silver. It's definitely the most valuable metal on the list so far, and it is a shiny uh, silver substance, so it makes sense. that you kind of harden it up and turn it into silver, silver being associated with the moon, silver being associated with the concepts of the subconscious and magic and purity. P- the reason it's associated with purity, uh, alchemically associated with purity, is because there's a lot of myths about this pure white metal, Um being a protective force, being a, you know, a valuable, pure metal. I don't know if you've ever seen silver. I know there are probably some listeners who have held actual silver in their hand, and then there probably are not, you know, some some who haven't. Um, silver is a magically beautiful metal. If you hold it in the sunlight, it shines with this white light that is gorgeous. And it, it does not surprise me that silver was uh, associated with things like purity um, in that that stage. And then eventually you get that silver and you transmute it into gold, and that gold is the you know it's the end product. It's the most valuable substance in the ancient world. It is associated with the planet. I know that the moon is not a planet and the sun is not a planet, but in, in the alchemical terms, that's that's what they dub them. Um, So the gold is associated with the sun and that's the creative forces. It is divine light. It is knowledge and sight and God and energy and enlightenment and the self, the true self. It is all of those things. And so when we talk about the metals that are the alchemical metals, we're talking about taking the human soul from lead, from that imperfect, uh, trying to learn the lessons of restriction and discipline and responsibility and finally bringing it elevating it all the way through tin through iron through copper through mercury through silver and finally up to that divine self that is enlightened and creative forces flow from it you know to be a source of light and life to those around you um to influence the universe you know that that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the alchemical metals is taking the individual from imperfection into their perfect self, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that individual is uh, just like everybody else. I would also keep in mind that one alchemical uh, ritual is not going to bring you there. You know, it's it's you know you might be able to turn one aspect of your life into gold by going through the process of being like, okay, well this one aspect, how am I, how could I be responsible with this one aspect of my life? How could I expand it and experience more freedom now that I understand that restriction and discipline? And how is it different from other things? How could it be assertive? How could that aspect of masculine force be used in that? And then, and then on to the feminine force. What does that mean? You know, like how can I be receptive towards this part of my life? How can I grow it? How can I get bounty from it? And then, how is it transmutable? And flowing between concepts how is it, how what kinds of containers does it fit in and then that aspect of my life could I um, you know could I find components of my subconscious in it and then eventually can I empower a perfect version of it um, in my life that's what we're talking about we're talking about alchemy most of the time is symbolic alchemy and that might be accomplished through Going, uh, taking a ritual, writing it around alchemical processes and steps. And that might be uh, l- literally physically on an altar, you might do some alchemical process in order to influence change within one's life. Strongly suggest don't just jump to the end, but to take some time at each one of those stages because they are all together part of the process. So what are those steps? What are those stages? Well, there's there's, for the most part, Alchemy gets broken down into three-step alchemy and seven-step alchemy. And uh, that's probably kind of interesting if you were paying attention because there's three Trio Primas and there's seven metals. (laughs) Um, That symbolism definitely carries on into the next. And the three-step alchemy is kind of what you'll hear a lot of people break things down to. um, The most common phrase that gets brought out of um, Lyphus Levi's work and the Baphomet image is on his forearms is tattooed solve et coagula which is Latin for dissolve and coagulate and that's a reference to alchemy that's the second reference the first reference in Baphomet being as above so below the second one being his his arm saying solve et coagula Um, to dissolve to break something down in order to form it together and the three-step alchemy does on some level mimic the Tria Prima. It is associated with three colors and the steps are the black stage, the white stage, and the red stage. And the belief behind that, um, number one, they believed that uh, the philosopher's stone was like a red crystallized substance. And um, also when you're doing metallurgy, if if you take something and you start to break it down and make an alloy because you're mixing this thing and then you're melting down this other thing and mixing it together, the surface of it during that process is often blackened. And then what you do is you do some processes in order to brighten that metal up, which is to go through a stage of white to add white to the color that you're looking at. And then when you start to get into stuff that's very, very valuable, like for example, we were talking about that chemical process of taking mercury in order to extract gold, uh, the mercury takes on a slightly red tone to it. That's the presence of the gold starting to redden that system. And so in Latin, these the words black, white, and red, or really it's blackening, whitening, and reddening as a process, right, um, are uh, Negrodo, uh Albedo, and Rubedo. So think um, the Latin word for uh, black being negro. Uh, so negrito uh, white being i don't actually remember what white is but the word it, whitening is albedo and then think like ruby you know to make to rubify something rubedo to make it red um, and the the three stages can basically be broken down into this concept of reducing things into their base components that's the blackening stage you're, you're burning off the excess and reducing them into their base components solve it, coagula, dissolve it first, right? Then you're uh, purifying those uh, to be uh, more pure versions of those elements. That's the whitening stage, albedo. And then finally, if you do have a perfected system where it's, you've, you've gotten those pure components out, now they're kind of lifeless because there's no... You know, you've removed the life and it's just the ingredients of a human being. If you've ever watched that show, there's an anime called Full Metal Alchemist. In the beginning of Full Metal Alchemist, he lists off the ingredients to a human being. And this is kind of what I mean by giving it life again. Um, if you have everything in its purified form sitting on the table, you might have a gram of this and 15 grams of that and a pound of this. And, you know, and if they're just the elements that make up a human being, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has life, but they might be the pure forms of those elements the reddening stages to bring it back to life, back to lighten it with its divine light, to take it through those final stages of silver and gold, right? So that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about taking it through three-step alchemy. Now, seven-step alchemy is specific processes. The seven steps are calcination, dissolution, separation, conjunction, fermentation, distillation and coagulation in that order always in that order these are broken uh these are heavily related to the um the the seven metals in the same order that they go lead calcination tin dissolution iron separation that one's really interesting because you separate people's body parts from other body parts when you go full mars on them and start chopping with iron swords uh copper conjunction fermentation is mercury uh distillation is uh silver and then coagulation is the concept of gold so um basically that first step calcination calcination is when you take usually they had like a little you've probably seen them uh if you've ever played like a video game like skyrim uh they do show up in skyrim where they have calcinators a calcinator is like a little metal bowl that's elevated on some stand Of some kind and they would put flame underneath it in order to heat that metal bowl up and burn the thing right you turn it into ash calcination is the process of breaking down the ego or breaking down whatever it is into its base it's a very destructive process it is breaking you down right dissolution is the process of taking that and immersing it in water you take those ashes of that broken down thing you sprinkle them into water you dissolve them. You make a solution, dissolution, right? It, that's taking the the broken down part of the ego and immersing it into the subconscious, into the deep symbols that exist deep underneath your, it's the unconscious mind. It's Jung's collective unconscious, right? Separation is the process of allowing things to separate out And you kind of start to identify which things are which so for example separation would be that process of like let's say you um let's say you took some oil and some water and you mix them together in a jar and you shake it up and it's all you know it's all together right it's all dissolved into one substance then you set it down and you let it separate into its different layers based on density and the oil separates out from the water unless you use something to join it together Um, then it will you know separate out into different substances and separation is that alchemical stage of separating out the different parts of yourself and identifying which parts are valuable and which parts are not and i will warn you right now that if you find yourself going through separation you should not automatically think that it's time to throw out the dark because it's not some of the components of your shadow are important other parts of your shadow are going to destroy you when you're separating out during this stage of alchemical processes it's very important to look at everything as if it is just an ingredient in the individual and decide which pieces you are going to keep because they are valuable. And that's really, really important for the stage of separation, right? Now everything's separated. You have it all separated out and now you want to conjoin it back together. That's the process of taking all the parts that you decided you're going to keep and integrating them into the individual. So when you're doing conjunction alchemically, uh, you're you're taking everything and mixing it back together in a way that it will form one cohesive substance. Now, I, if you notice, we've gone through the processes of solvent coagula already, and they call this kind of the minor success. You start off and you are, uh, you know, impure, and then you have now made yourself a a better system uh, by breaking it down and putting it back together again. However, you are not done. You must test how Well, you did, and that is why the next step comes in, which is fermentation. Now, fermentation, if you have any friends that are really, really good at computers, there's this concept in computer sciences of hardening a system. Hardening a system is done by penetration testing. It's not just that you built this perfect system, your perfect new self that you think has all the right parts and has all the wrong parts discarded. It's not always about that. Now we have to see how right you were. And so with fermentation, what you're doing is you're just letting it sit and putrefy and develop and change and and putrefication and fermentation is that concept of taking something like cabbage and turning it into sauerkraut. It's not necessarily to say that fermentation adds nothing to the process. It develops the flavors, it adds flavors of its own, but it is a form of rotting. It's controlled rotting. And so you're letting uh, the fermentation process further putrefy develop and change this newly conjoined parts right then it's time to clean it up again so you got it putrefied you developed all of those things and now it's time to distillation is the s- step of distilling it you boil it condense it and separate out the the pure condensed version of what was left in that jar into things like an essential oil is a perfect example of distillation. Uh, alcohol is an example of something you make with distillation. If you're making liquor, the difference between beer and liquor is that you have distilled it, right? So beer is literally made by fermenting the the right you know things together, but then you take that alcohol, whether it's beer, mead, whatever. And you throw it through a distiller, you boil it, condense it, and pull off just the actual chemical alcohol. And then you get something like whiskey or you get something like vodka, depending on whatever you know process you're using. Uh, that's a perfect example of what that distillation stage is. You're pulling out the subconscious, the pure form of it. So when we talked about this process of silver being the moon and subconscious and purity that's kind of what we mean. Fermentation is about making it an alcoholic drink, which is obviously, I mean, a lot better than just wheat water, you know. Nobody wants to drink just water that's, you know, liquefied bread. We want it to be fermented first, you know. But you can't just ferment it. You should really just pull out the pure form of that in order to make it something interesting, something pure, right? That's that process of distillation. And then finally coagulation is the crystallization of that pure substance that has gone through all those different stages into one cohesive and pure crystal the philosopher's stone you know that's that's that stage of perfection and the philosopher's stone goes far beyond just being able to create gold and far more into being able to create gold out in the universe and also to create good health and also to create happiness and creativity and all those types of things. That divine enlightened energy flowing through your now crystallized self. So seven-step alchemy is about taking the individual, breaking down the ego, immersing oneself within the unconscious, separating out the different parts and deciding which parts we were going to keep and which parts we were going to throw away, joining all of those parts together into a single substance, letting that sit and putrefy in order to develop, change, and break down in order to find out how good we really did with it, which probably wasn't as good as you would think, and then to dissolve, or I'm sorry, to distill that substance into a more pure version of whatever the outcome was and crystallize it into a perfect being. That is what alchemy is about. Now, it's highly symbolic and um, all of the symbols that get used in ancient alchemy start to get heavily tied into whatever religion exists in that time period. So when it was with the Greeks, it, it learned, uh, you know, the alchemists learned of the elements. When it was the Egyptians, they learned of, you know, the solar cycles and, and life and death and those types of things. And when it made its way into uh, uh, the... Uh, Arabic cultures it learned of gods and the angels and the you know the the prime spirits and those types of things then when it made its way into uh, medieval Europe it picked up the Kabbalah and it picked up uh, the Christian uh, concept of you know gods and angels and those kinds of things and then eventually it made its way to distilling itself into a process of scientific revolution and then eventually it became chemistry so I, i think it is fascinating how all of our lives have been drastically impacted by the seven step alchemical process but that you can also go through this yourself and some people choose to do this in various ways um emulating your rituals around them is obviously one some people claim that you know psychedelics are a form of alchemical um transmutations to take the self and I I can't think of somebody who wrote extensively on psychedelics and didn't write about the breaking down of the ego being something that experience, you experienced very early on, although I don't know a whole lot of people that wrote extensively on the coagulation of the perfect self or, you know, the distillation of uh, an, a putrefied substance. But those are the steps that one might symbolically go through. And you, uh, over and over and over again, it's not to say that... Um, that the individual would only go through these processes once, but you can always—if I mean, unless you have truly turned your yourself into a gold-like substance that is a perfect enlightened being, there is always room to undergo another set of alchemical changes. Um, yeah. <coughs> now, uh, three-step alchemy and seven-step alchemy are very, very highly related. So, uh, water. Um. delicious okay three-step alchemy has all of the seven steps in it so the black stage of uh, three-step alchemy is the process of calcination and dissolution right the white stage of alchemy uh, being the uh, purification of those uh, so you break down into the elements and then you purify those elements that's done through separation and conjunction so the black stage is, hey, we're going to break it down, burn off all of the excess, see what's left. Then we're going to take that and we're going to dissolve it into the unconscious, right? That's the black stage. The black stage is reducing it to its base components. All the base components are in the liquid when you've calcinated and then dissolved something. Then you get to the white stage to separate out the individual ingredients the purification of those individual ingredients is done by separation and then conjunction of leftover. And then the red stage, to give all of that life again, is to ferment it, dist- uh, distill it, and then coagulate it into its perfect substance. So uh, when we talk about three-step, we are also talking about seven-step. Um, another thing to keep in mind about the black, white, and red stages is that if you start to get down the rabbit hole far enough and you start running into some ancient... Um, paintings, depictions of uh, the symbols that existed for these individuals that uh, were, you know, studying the spiritual processes that were behind alchemy, you will find that there are often things like a uh, an animal that you know, animals were really really big on it, especially birds, but animals in general, but especially birds, are uh, symbols that you used quite a bit, Uh, so you might have um, a symbol being like a black animal that is meant to symbolize that black stage um, in, in its completion and then you might find like a white animal to be the white stage in its completion and then a red animal to be red in its stage so those types of things you're going to definitely notice or maybe plants maybe you'll see a black a white and then a red uh, in plant growth or those types of things within those paintings A lot of times they were encoding different spiritual concepts and sometimes chemical concepts into these pictures. They can be a lot of fun to uh, print up and take a look at. And there's some art books that exist out there where they've collected a lot of them and scanned them all into one book. And you can definitely flip through and have a lot of fun uh, even just looking at them because they do have a very hermetic, weird, mystic uh, art style to them because they are often encoded concepts that are you know there for you to uh to explore now uh there was an episode where i talked about uh, one of the episodes that i did i mentioned at the end that there was no secret messages in something when we're talking about the alchemical paintings the paintings of alchemical processes that is a perfect example of where there are most definitely yes nod your head with me yes there are secret messages within those paintings. Sometimes they put them in there to convey them to other people. Sometimes they put them in there to throw people off their trail because they felt like they were getting really, really close to the Philosopher's Stone. And sometimes they did it because they were trying to hide the fact that they were doing alchemy to stop from being burned at the stake or persecuted in some way, which would have ultimately led to a loss of their life or their lifestyle. So it depends on who made the painting what period they were in and how blatantly they were putting it in there, uh, you very well might find that if you uh, study the individual animals' symbols, maybe the alchemical symbols where they've drawn like, oh, there's a triangle on top of a cross and that means sulfur and they, this man is clearly pouring sulfur into, you know, this giant vat of, I don't know, whatever the thing is. You might uh, be able to discern Um, some specific chemical or spiritual concepts out of the secret message they're painting into those paintings good luck Uh, one individual who uh, I suppose what what I'm trying to get at is that knowing the individual helps a lot too because individuals might have spent a lot of their work working with one particular substance for example Sir Isaac Newton the uh, individual who made Newton's uh, laws of thermodynamics is it thermodynamics? yeah, Newton's law. No, whatever, Newton's laws um, that individual the guy who uh, allegorically was hit on the head with an apple and discovered, oh, there's gravity um, those types of things he's associated with he was in fact an alchemist and practiced alchemy until it killed him <laughs> Uh, he uh, was obsessed with the metal that is bismuth, and it, it, uh, he believed that it would eventually lead to his um, alchemical success. And uh, it, if I remember correctly, bismuth poisoning was actually what caused his death, if not definitely led to his health decline. Bismuth is a very interesting uh, metal in that it grows in really, really weird shapes, and you can grow these crystals at home if you want. Um, it grows in like these squares, these cubes on top of cubes on top. It's almost like like fractalated squares, if that makes sense. And it also is a rainbowy substance, and it melts very very easily. So if you would ever like to, um, obviously take some safety precautions. Look up, you know, the types of safety precautions you should do in the home. But you can buy bismuth. And uh, it will melt on your, front, on your stove. You do not need any special equipment in order to do it. And then if you cool it at the right type of a rate, it will form those cool-ass crystals. And, uh, or you can buy them. They're cheap because they are so easy to make. Uh, you can find them online for you know, 20 bucks or whatever. Um, but, yep, that is an example of an individual who gave their life to the study of alchemy. Um if you have more questions uh ask because we're always happy to dive deeper into a topic if it's interesting for people. I am going to wrap this episode up, but I imagine that as you could probably tell there's a lot more information about alchemy. Uh the more that we dive into any one particular culture, specific individuals and their history and writing, um we could even go uh, a little bit more in-depth into the, the deeper side that is the alchemical process. Uh, so, <coughs> depending which part of this episode that you find that you loved, please reach out to me. You can reach me at nate at com and uh, let me know what you liked. Good luck. I hope this was a beneficial episode for you. I hope that, uh, if nothing else, you... Uh, it offers you a way to abstractly think about sym- symbolic change in your life, and that you can use that either to um, attack problems, like, for example, hey, this is a very lead type problem. I could apply calcination to it, you know, and kind of really try to break down this thing, or this is a very, I don't know, mercurial problem. I could apply some fermentation. And it kind of makes sense to problem solve in that way for some people. Uh, so if nothing else, I hope you get that in in a best case scenario. I hope that this is a uh, enlightening experience to be able to, you know, hear somebody talk about these kinds of things and incorporate these into your life. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it's a benefit. Um, yeah. So uh, you guys have a great day and good luck. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.